This episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Saucy. Because I'm saucy. Uh, and I guess no one really knows the lyrics after that. Uh, so I won't make a song parody. Saucy is beer, wine, and spirits ordered online and delivered directly to your door. I wish the uh, lyrics to Happy were delivered directly to my door so I could write a song parody. Uh, unfortunately, they were not. So I do not have a song parody for this ad. Alcohol delivery in 30 minutes. You can shop for over 10,000 plus products. Great prices. In order to craft beer, wine, and spirits online or download the mobile app for iOS or Android. I'm going to download the lyrics app for iOS. And then I'm going to look at the so- uh, happy lyrics, turn them into saucy specifics. Um, maybe something about not sauce, but it's actually alcohol delivery. But it would be in a, in a cadence of Pharrell's happy is what I was thinking. Stay in and order a drink. There's no delivery fees, no minimums. Order the drinks you want, and in 30 to 60 minutes, have a drink at your door or schedule alcohol delivery when it's best for you. Plus, they have snacks, mixers, and more, all available for delivery in less than an hour. Uh, maybe maybe I'll spend an hour next time Saucy comes up. Next time Saucy comes up, I'm going to spend an hour looking up at the, the Pharrell happy lyrics, and I will write a song parody with uh, Saucy specifics for happy. That is the promise I'm making to the good people at Saucy, the listeners of On Comedy Writing, and uh, Pharrell's estate. To get alcohol delivered to your door and to save 10% on your order, go to boardwalkaudio.com slash saucy. That's boardwalkaudio.com forward slash saucy, S-A-U-C-E-Y. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the supporter artist button and shop on Amazon like we normally would. We get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Daniel Kibblesmith. He's written for the Onion News Network. He was a founding editor at ClickHole, and now he's currently at The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. If you're a fan of comics, he does a lot of that work while at Colbert, similarly to former guest Jeff Loveness, who did a lot of that work while at Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, it's a good app. You're going to like it. So here is Daniel Kibblesmith. Uh, Daniel, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm from Oak Park, Illinois. Oh, okay. It's a town just outside uh, Chicago, like a Chicago suburb. Did you like uh, growing up there? It was, yeah, it was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a little baby, so I didn't know really uh, if it was a bad uh, mm-hmm. bad situation. Like, I, you know, I went to high school and I, I hated high school, but uh, when I was there, I didn't have any, like, uh, angst about being in a, a small town and wanting to go to a bigger city or anything. So mm-hmm. we just, we we're, you know, went to Chicago a lot uh, as children, went to museums and zoos and things. So, yeah, it was fine. Um, I guess like, uh, the, that was, uh, it was a good balance of like, um, opportunities to, to do sort of, it was very liberal and, uh, you know, very, very arty and even mm-hmm. more so now. So, uh, yeah, opportunities to do stuff. And the high school had a really good TV program, uh, despite me uh, hating it there. So, oh, interesting. They had like a TV, like... Yeah, it was a it was a public access studio. Oh, right. Is what okay. it was. So you had like a weekly news broadcast, 
that was uh, by the students and watched by no one. <laughs> um, but uh, that was that was really fun. So that was the first mm-hmm. time I did any uh, broadcasting. Were you uh, into comedy at all as like a kid? Were you like, watching a lot of stuff? Yeah, I I loved it. I never thought about doing it because I think I had a really narrow uh, perception of of what the jobs were. Like I loved watching stand up, but I knew that I didn't want to do stand up. Um, or you know, I had no like specific desire as a child to be a stand up comedian uh, or or an actor. I wanted to make movies. Uh, and, and ended up going to film school, but I kind of d- loved comedy in an incidental way. I never thought about myself as a comedian or like set out to specifically do comedy. That's just most of what I loved. The mic stand and just drooping. <laughs> that was just most. That's most of what I just like naturally like gravitated toward. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really like decision driven until until later in life. Were you, uh, so you mentioned stand-up, so what kind of uh, stand-up did you like watching? God, so I, well, when I was little, it would have been whoever, you know? Yeah, it yeah. would have just been stand-up comedy, and I knew, I was a little kid, and I knew it was funny because the audience laughed, <laughs> or because they, you know, their voices would be intense. Uh, so I remember loving this uh, show, I think, called Comic Strip Live. It was on maybe Fox or syndicated uh, sometime after SNL. Uh, and uh, yeah, like before or after SNL where I lived. And I would tape that on VHS and just watch all the comic strips. Uh, or comic, stand-up comics. <laughs> it was called Comic Strip Live, I think, for no reason. I think it had like a vague... It was like on the strip or something? No. Oh, maybe. Uh, I seem to recall it had like... And maybe I learned this later from IMDb, but it had like a vague comic strip, like newspaper comic strip sort of aesthetic slapped over it. The idea, I guess, the idea, I guess, being the newspaper comics are so funny. (laughs) As we all know, that these these stand-up comedians are as though they have escaped from the newspaper funny pages. (laughs) I see. Or I'm completely making this up. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I I loved stand-up. And then it wasn't until I got to, like, high school and college that uh, I had cool friends turning me on to... um, uh, you know, like the first time I saw Mr. Show, it was like a huge game changer. Like I didn't know that anything could be that funny because all the comedy that I'd seen up until that point was, uh, you know, SNL was probably the funniest thing that I knew about. Uh, and uh, uh, I have the the cast of people that I have an emotional relationship with because that's how old I was uh, when they were the stars of SNL. Uh, and then, um, you know, I liked like Garfield and stuff. I liked the <laughs> things that were like funny for children. Uh, and then, uh, and I just remember dying laughing the first time I saw, um, uh, Mr. Show or like when I started getting old enough to kind of get kids in the hall. Um, and that was another, that was another big one. So I wanted to do funny stuff with my friends, like on public access, uh, or on, um, you know, like video, we would, we would make camcorder videos, but, uh, it still never occurred to me that we were trying to be comedians as much as I was making a movie. Mm-hmm. And this is what I liked. And that's what our natural energy was. So, yeah, once I, Mr. Show uh, was kind of the gateway to, like, what at the time, I guess, was the big West Coast kind of alt-comedy scene. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a lot of people who are still my favorite comedians today, like, uh, like uh, Paul F. Tompkins or Maria Bamford or, uh, you know, Patton Oswalt, Sarah Silverman, like that mm-hmm. kind of wave of people. Mm-hmm. 
And and for these uh these movies that you were making, were they for like the the public access or was it just, like just to have No, that was just a news that was just a news show. But the public access show did eventually let me do like uh I think they, they recognized that I kind of had a big personality in high school, and they gave me this sort of, like, Louis Black-inspired <laughs> uh, slot at the end of the news show, where I was, like, the Andy Rooney of the <laughs> local uh, public access, like, children's, effectively children, you know, children who are having sex with each other, but children uh, who are having sex with each other and running a news show, and I was the... Sounds you know, like the newsroom. It was exactly like the newsroom. We broke uh, when Bin Laden was killed. <laughs> Uh, years before 9-11, which was weird. Um, but yeah, we, uh, they let me do like kind of a Lewis Black inspired, you know, daily show shtick at the end of this public access show. And that was the, that was the first time I did anything kind of like on camera with any confidence, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you remember like what your topics would be? Like it would be like, the lunch is too damn expensive. Yeah, I was in the neighborhood. Of, <laughs> yeah. It was it was angstier for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then I remember for the last episode of the news show, they let the kids do kind of like a funny one, like a parody one. Uh, and I, uh, we had a rotating producer slot, so I aggressively lobbied to be the producer of the funny <laughs> the funny news show. So um, it's kind of like Monty Python ish. You know, nonsense jokes about, like, we put fish in the uh, weather, the weekly weather uh, graphic. Uh, so for the show that kind of had no rules, my topic was, um, I was reading a lot of conspiracy theory books in high school, and my topic was uh, the theory that the moon is hollow that I had just oh. read about. I just read about in, I think, a book called uh, Alien Agenda by Jim Mars, uh, R.I.P., uh, who uh, he has a chapter in that book that said that the moon was hollow and that when they dropped stuff on it, uh, there was like seismic activity that implied that it that it would like reverberate and that there are no there are no naturally occurring hollow satellites. Uh, therefore, the moon is an alien construct. So I talked about that. Oh. On public access. So he was saying that the the moon is created by aliens. Yeah, pretty much. But by process because of elimination. <laughs> right, exactly. He's not saying the moon is created by aliens. He's saying the moon is hollow, <laughs> and also there aren't hollow moons. <laughs> He's not crazy. He's just doing the math. Huh. I, know, I haven't heard that one. No, because it's not true. Yeah, <laughs> He's it's definitely wrong. Yeah, yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> uh, so you went to college for film. Yeah, yeah. I went to Columbia College in Chicago. Oh, okay, yeah, I've heard of that. Uh, did you, were you like, you mentioned that you're kind of unsure about you, like what, what a comedy job was. Yeah. I took, I went to film school and I was in the directing program, but I, I didn't really like being on set and I was not technically adept. Um, I was not good at knowing, you know, which lens I wanted to use and why, or, you know, lighting something, um, was all just totally beyond me. I only thought about story and characters and jokes. Uh, so I switched to writing and wrote a couple screenplays in college. And then when I got out of college, uh, it was around 05, 06. And that's when YouTube was becoming a thing the first time. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I kind of, I kind of put it together that nobody wanted to see like a dramatic student film about your, your teenage breakup, but you do like comedy sketches. People were, would watch comedy sketches on YouTube. Um, and you could, people were starting to get jobs that way. Like it, it's always sunny was a web series. I'm pretty sure. And, um, I had a vague awareness of that. So I started doing, um, and I'd, I'd drawn comics too. Uh, my whole life I'd drawn 
not good comics. Uh, and uh, I didn't really like drawing, and I was frustrated with, with my ability. Uh, so I started doing puppet shows on the internet, and that was kind of like oh. a synthesis of like my film school uh, film school experience and my desire to do like what was effectively like a web comic what was like a video web comic with like very simple jokes and characters and um, from there uh, I just kind of lived at home and I was bored and I knew I wanted to do uh, writing more um, and, and do it for a living so uh, I started going to stand-up shows uh, open mics uh, I took um uh, some uh, Second City uh, classes. Uh, I took the first few levels of uh, improv uh, and um, started showing the videos uh, that I was making in uh, comedy clubs. I was invited, I think through other Columbia students, I was invited to show them in a place called the Lincoln Lodge uh, in Chicago, which is kind of, uh, I think it's still the longest running independent comedy showcase mm-hmm. uh, in Chicago. Uh, and it was originally in a restaurant called the Lincoln Lodge and they've just produced... Like every comic that you've heard of uh, has probably done a lot of a lot at the Lincoln Lodge. Uh, anyone anyone you've heard of like recently, like in the past few years, mm-hmm. is probably a Lincoln Lodge person mm-hmm. in some way. So uh, going back to that puppet show, what was like that about? Uh, nothing. Uh, it was <laughs> it like was Seinfeld. It was yeah, it was, it was Seinfeld the puppet show. Um, no, it was kind of like it was very post-college, like, Dogma 95. Like, it had a lot of rules. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was in front of a red curtain. It was called Mr. Thing and Mr. Place. And um, I did both of the voices, and I didn't change my voice in any way. And they were totally interchangeable characters. And it was just, like, just whatever I thought was funny at the time. And probably very offensive now. Probably not <laughs> something that I would stand by at all. Like a college kid uh, who watched a lot of South Park and Family Guy, it was like trying to figure figure out what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a lot of it was really weird too, which I I think uh, I think I might get. That's the less cringy part of if I revisited this now is that it was mm-hmm. a lot of it was super out there, and um, because I was doing a puppet show on the internet, I. Uh, at the time, had the MySpace URL, myspace.com slash puppets. Wow. And I got messages from other people who just wanted to know who had that URL. Uh, and that's how I ended up meeting um, some some friends that I still work with, including uh, the Wham City people. Oh, yeah. Because at the time, they had split into different kind of art collective factions uh, on the East Coast and the West Coast. And... Uh, the Family Ghost, uh, as they were known at the time, was the the Oakland uh, Wham City faction, and they also made puppet shows in front of the green <laughs> screen. Um, so yeah, so I, I went out. I also went out and stayed with them uh, for a few weeks uh, in in their big green screen warehouse at the time, and yeah, just gradually learning how to do what I wanted to do uh, before any of it was a job. So so was it a lot of like trial and error with that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, because there's no, it's all error, you know. <laughs> like there's, there's no, the the peak of it is showing it at a at a comedy show uh-huh. or a film festival or something, uh, which is everybody there is kind of just on the same level, helping each other out, and you know, you're doing you're doing people favors when you submit to their thing. They're doing you favors when they show your work. Uh, so it was more just like just gradual it was just getting older you know it was getting getting older getting more 
experience and knowing more people and uh, garnering more discipline and more skill. Um, so yeah, more less trial and error, more just like building, very gradually building mm-hmm. towards like an awareness of uh, how to do it as a as a job. You know, looking at people I admired and kind of kind mm-hmm. of learning how they how they got there, what paths are repeatable. Mm-hmm. So uh, one thing uh, that that uh, well, one thing I knew was that at the, at the time I knew I wanted to have an office job. I knew I wanted to have like health insurance and comfort mm-hmm. and an apartment and stuff. Uh, I knew I didn't want to be a stand up because uh, I just uh, get a little bit of a little bit of stage fright. Um, and was friends with enough stand-ups to know that they were in their element in a way that I was not uh, when they were up there. So uh, me and my uh, friend Sam Weiner ended up writing a book because uh, we figured that was a way to reach a national audience while still living in Chicago at the time and um, uh, having jobs, like having day jobs. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we wrote a humor <clears throat> book and then... Um, you know that didn't immediately like lead to anything, but we were the guys who had written a book. Mm-hmm. Whenever we, whenever we like tried to do something, and um, that was a how to win at everything. How to win at everything, even things you can't and shouldn't try to win at. So, how do you go about like writing a book? Like, how do you even start doing that? Yeah, it's that's a lot of trial and error. Yeah. That was like uh, we went the traditional method. You know, this was kind of pre Kickstarter. Uh, we didn't think that we'd get anything from self publishing. Like, we didn't think that we had the uh, that it was the right idea or the right lifestyle to try to just like to make you know self-publishing successfully is kind of a full-time job and you're your own marketing department which you kind of are anyway yeah actually. self-publishing i feel like still today isn't like a great option no people. it's 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 cool it can be you know it can be like a weird lottery ticket if, yeah. if you've got the right thing and and it works out for you uh and then you just own it entirely mm. um but uh, we just we wanted it to be like a legit book in stores. Uh, we wanted to do it do it upright. So we um, wrote a proposal based on samples we found online. Uh, we cold solicited uh, agencies, uh, literary agencies, um, and kind of reached out to people that we just thought represented stuff that we. Uh, aspired to i guess you know not stuff like us would be generous but stuff that we aspired to like so we reached out to the agencies who represented like the daily show books and the onion books and um they just like did a lot of humor or like urban outfitters the kind of gift mm-hmm. books uh and then we ended up um getting on the radar of an agent after i threw my job at the time uh i worked at uh, groupon.com in chicago which Groupon and the Lincoln Lodge are the place where all the comedians pass. <laughs> and um, like for a while, they employed, you know, in 2011, they probably employed like 90% of the Chicago improv community. Oh, really? I thought you were yeah. joking. Not even oh. a little bit. No, no, no. This is a real, this is a real thing that people can kind of like look up. There's an oral tradition, uh, or uh, sorry, there's an oral history to be written about Groupon <laughs> and the Chicago comedy community that I personally don't want to participate in because <laughs> I did it already. Um, but, uh, so I worked at Groupon and through Groupon, I, uh, went on the reality television program, The Millionaire Matchmaker as uh-huh. one of the millionaires, I'm doing air quotes, uh, and, um, that got us on the, that got us on the radar of, uh, like literary agents where we were able to kind of like send them a thing hmm. and be like, look, we're 
funny guys and you know one of us did this and uh yeah would you like to to see our book proposal i'm not familiar with the millionaire matchmaker oh my gosh so did you wait how did you get on through groupon i don't <laughs> so uh, yeah i guess that's a that's a totally legitimate question <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so they have a lot of, it's a show, if you haven't, if you haven't seen it, it's a show, uh, where a evil witch, uh, she's sort of a, she's a matchmaker, like she's a professional matchmaker, but you know, she's a, like a reality television person uh-huh. in, as, in as far as like, this is her job, maybe in real life, definitely on the show. Hmm. Uh, and sh- the premise of the show is that rich men, men with 1 million or more dollars have trouble, uh, meeting women. And okay. that they need help uh, from a lady who will yell at them and uh, question all of their life decisions, despite them being millionaires. So uh, I went on the show because um, almost everybody who goes on, and this is true, I think, of reality TV in general. Like everybody there is like some kind of hustler. Like they've got like a, they're entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. or they're trying to promote, you know, like a fragrance or a vodka or something. And um, Groupon was a startup company uh, that hired humor writers and had, you know, was was trying to have kind of like a quirky sensibility, uh, it, which, I, God, I just realized I said the word quirky sensibility about something <laughs> that I was involved with, which is really, <laughs> really disappointing. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the PR person uh, for Groupon reached out to the Bravo, to the the, the time the producers of Millionaire Matchmaker as sort of like a mutually beneficial, like like a logical thing to have somebody uh, from this like startup company that's uh-huh. making millionaires, you know, new millionaires were coming out of this company. Uh, and they said uh, we could maybe have the CEO on or something. And the CEO, also a funny guy with a sort of burned down the world attitude, uh, was like, no, I'll just send Kibble Smith. He'll <laughs> be the millionaire and he'll he'll go. Um, so, uh, yeah, I went on this, uh, reality television dating show where they gave me a makeover. Wow. And, yeah. And they, and they said you were a millionaire? They did. They did. Wow. That's extremely cannot, dishonest. Well, I can't legally say if I am, <laughs> if I am or was, or on paper was, <laughs> or never will be a millionaire. But, but you use that appearance to kind of, uh, but help. It's a, it's a, reality TV is a, is a, is a legal gray area. <laughs> Uh, so I'm not saying I wasn't a millionaire. Uh, I'm just saying I was the millionaire on the show Millionaire Matchmaker. I was not the matchmaker. <laughs> uh, and you, you used that appearance to kind of help uh, sell your proposal? Yeah. I mean, not in like a direct way. But uh, once we were able to like have conversations with people, they were just curious about the kind of comedy we were making. And I, I could send them clips of a television show and mm-hmm. be like, this is this is." Um, this is a real TV show, and I do like a lot of riffing, and it it elevated my profile in such a way that, uh, yeah, maybe I could help, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, get the attention of, of literary agents and then therefore publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, really indirect. You know, there's nothing about re- people who are on reality TV and go on to do books usually have to be the star of the reality TV show, and the books are written by other people. The books <laughs> are ghostwritten and have their face on them so it was more like there were intermediate steps where it's like comedians saw the millionaire matchmaker episode and they would talk to me on twitter about it 
uh, and we mm. would get like little leads, you know, from friends, mm-hmm. uh, uh, contact people that we could reach out to. So yeah, from there we we started interviewing agents uh, until we found a literary agent who, um, yeah, it was cool taking a chance on us, and it made a it made a big difference for us. Uh, how did you decide what the book would be? I think we had the title. I think Sam Weiner came up with the title first, uh, and I think we were big fans of like. Uh, uh, faux authority, you know, like uh, John Hodgman, mm-hmm. you know, the Colbert Report, obviously. Uh, and um, we also knew that we were nobodies. So nobody wanted like a book of comedic essays by two people that, you know, they had never heard of. Uh, so we needed like a, a, effectively like a character, you know, like a buy-in or a, or a brand or, or just some kind of easily accessible you know, shtick. To, to put over it. So uh, between Sam coming up with what he thought was a really commercial title uh, and uh, our sort of like gravitating towards just lies, like the kind of comedy that we like doing uh, was a lot of lying and uh, bad advice and, you know, d- danger, putting people in dangerous situations <laughs> if they if they follow through. Um uh, yeah, like I, a lot of the things, a lot of the things that I that I was doing and still do are like vaguely trolly or hoaxy, and I think it's a place I feel really comfortable in. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, at the time I was doing a Twitter account, and I still have it uh, called at GOP Teens, and that was one of the first things I did that you know got any amount of attention. Like uh, Republican teenagers. Yeah, it was like <laughs> fake. It was fake youth outreach for the mm-hmm. republicans yeah and i just could i'd only did it because i couldn't believe it was available yeah um i, I loved the idea of, of having of having uh that uh power of taking that away from somebody who could use it for real mm-hmm. uh, so i think if i have any kind of comedic philosophy it's like quick get that before before the bad guys can use it on <laughs> us we're not supposed to have that uh so once you get the literary agent do you just start um, sending out your your kind of pitch to different publishers? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we write a pitch for the book with the literary agent's guidance, uh, and then um, and then yeah, they go out. Uh, they go out, and this is the same process that that um, you know if you if you do a book kind of the traditional way, this is pretty much the process. Is you, uh, they have like I think even like a like a specific window of time, like a day or something that they. Uh, are drumming up their contacts at publishers for a while, and then they officially put it up, you know, to, yeah. for people to make offers. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we ended up um, uh, selling it to uh, Chronicle, who's a publisher who does a lot of, like, cool designy illustrated gift books uh, based in San Francisco and um, had the same editor as the Worst Case Scenario handbook, which at the time we were like, we're going to be rich this is going to change everything and then it turns out what people like about the worst case scenario uh handbooks is that it's real advice and our book was the opposite of real advice oh interesting okay and a lot and it was also very dry you know like the like gop teens like Mm -hmm. you know like the things we were inspired by it's really dry uh and if you don't know that it's a joke book um and i think it's fairly obvious uh but if you just pick it up impulsively. You're, you might be disappointed that it's not like real cool advice about how to survive jumping out of an airplane or something. Uh, so if you go to our like our Amazon page, a lot of our negative reviews are from people who say, "Don't bother. This is fake. This is a, <laughs> this is a book of jokes written by two comedians." 
it is funny how mad people get about stuff like that. Like they feel personally duped, even though you weren't really trying to dupe anybody. No, the very much the opposite. We wanted to give them a nice experience. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they get defensive really, yeah. really quick. <laughs> uh, when did you start contributing at the Onion? Around the same time, um, mm-hmm. when the Onion moved to Chicago. So I had done like some freelance video work for the AV Club that they probably didn't even know about when I came back um, applying to be a, an ONN contributor. Uh, so around 2012, uh, when The Onion moved to Chicago, uh, me, uh, some of the other people I was working with um, uh, at the startup company, including Sam Weiner, uh, we applied uh, to to be staff writers, basically. And... Um, uh, Sam Weiner uh, got hired uh, as a staff writer. I got hired as a contributor, uh, and I was a local contributor, so I could go in for meetings and stuff, which was really cool. So um, the Onion, and I'm sure lots of people listening to this like are Onion contributors or no Onion contributors. Uh, there's all these uh, shit. Can I swear? Can I say yeah, shit? Yeah, yeah. So shit. Appropriately enough, I just realized that there's all these layers to the Onion. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, the the staff writers, uh, you know, are there every day, obviously doing the bulk of it, and then there's like remote contributors, and then there's like like local contributors like me and some of my friends who are going in every week uh, to to get to be in on meetings, which is really cool if you don't actually work there. And then there's you know like interns and fellows and yeah, uh, all kinds of different people are throwing throwing material in. So um, that was my first like kind of capital C comedy job. Uh, was uh, getting to do uh, Onion News Network stuff. And then because I was local and because I was, uh, you know, like friendly with everybody, I was kind of roped into the family, uh, uh, at least on the video side, you know, because kind of compartmentalized on the video side, I was kind of roped into the family really fast. So whenever they had stuff they could throw me, uh, if, if whether it was on the ad side or I'm like I directed a couple of uh, spec ads uh, for the the onions ad side, um, which I really appreciated them letting me do because you know I wasn't really like hadn't been directing since school probably or just on my own. Um, so they would like throw me stuff, and then uh, then when Clickhole was getting up, uh, I was one of the associate editors when Clickhole started, mm-hmm. and that was when I was full time at the Onion organization. So what was it like going to those meetings as a contributor? It was really great. I mean, it was kind of a, it felt very, the Onion was the first thing that I'd heard of before I got to work there. Um, It was the first time I was associated with something that I already had like a lot of respect and admiration for. So it felt great. It felt like I was in, uh, in like a, in like a, we've, we've made it kind of way like that, um, I if nothing else happens career wise, I will have contributed to the onion, and that's something that people are aware of. And maybe you know when the bottom falls out of this ridiculous comedy dream, uh, I can uh, use that to get like bad advertising jobs, and things like that. <laughs> They're like, oh, the onion, I love the onion. You know, one about the Aryan band and the pizza. That's me. <laughs> uh, so uh, it felt yeah, it felt it felt really good. Um, that kind of like starstruck, acting cool, don't want to screw it up. Um, but at the same time, you know, at the same time, it was Chicago Onion. It was new. Like, everybody there was new, and I knew most of them mm. um, in, in some capacity. So, uh, so yeah, it felt, in a weird way, it felt like a graduating class, like kind of a continuation of 
you know, who, who I'd been writing with. Uh, you know, I wrote a book with Sam Weiner. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it felt very, you know, uh, I, I work with, uh, I've worked with Colin Crawford at several companies, including the Onion News Network and, um, now the Col- the Colbert show, the late show with Stephen Colbert only on CBS. <laughs> and, um, it has this creepy kind of saved by the bell, the new class quality <laughs> where <laughs> we're not hiring each other. Like we're not, you know, we're not expressly getting each other hired because uh, he's terrible and I hate him. <laughs> um, but we are, uh, we keep getting hired at the same places as though we are, you know, it's like, just let, just let him come. Just let the other one come. <laughs> um, they know each other already. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. It's pretty funny. Uh, I remember listening to like a This American Life episode about The Onion I think it was probably back when it was... Tough New- Room? Yeah, Tough Room. Yeah. Yeah. It was back oh. when it was in New York, I think. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think Megan Yans is in that episode. Yeah. So. And, uh, yeah, that's like sounds horrible. I mean, it was really intense listening to that audio. It wasn't as intense for us, because I think the newspaper side has sort of a different sensibility. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. I mean, they yeah. polish... Like, it's funny every time, because they polish everything into a diamond. Um, they're not really like a throw it at the wall and see what sticks organization. Right. Uh, they're just like a really good, perfect joke factory. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really like that for me because we were on the onion news network. So there's a little more experimenting and there's more flexibility in the medium we were working in. Cause it was all the, it was the video side. And then within the video side, there's like genres, there's like kind of like parody shows and stuff like a sports show or, you know, a, a, a celebrity gossip show. Mm-hmm. So no, I always felt really, I always felt really like supported and, you know, not that like that, that paints too negative a picture of the regular onion at, at any point. But, uh, yeah, if people listen to that episode, that was not my experience. <laughs> Mine was like, Oh, these are my friends and, uh, they're really smart writers and they're giving me good advice. And when they change something, it's always better. Uh, so yeah, I had, a, I had a good time. It was brief. It was brief. It was, then I was a click hole and then, and then I almost immediately moved to New York. <laughs> uh, how would you come up with headlines when you were a contributor? Oh God. I mean, it was, it was an after hours thing. So mm-hmm. it was just walking around. Uh, cause you'd need, huh. you would need some, uh, intimidating number every few days or something like that. You know, it was like 15 twice a week or something. Um, so you just, you'd have a notebook all of the time, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, just, uh, I guess nowadays it's, it's kind of been devoured by Twitter. Uh, but it was like, yeah, I need to have like 15 good tweets every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they were, you know, very much written in the same way where it was like, I met my day job and I come up with something kind of impulsively. Uh, and then there was, if, you know, if I didn't hit that number, there was just late nights. Then it was just kind of like staring at the blank page, uh, or, you know, banging my head against the wall or the opposite, like free writing and then stumbling onto things and keeping the good ones. Oh, I wouldn't even think to do like free writing for like the onion. Yeah. I really recommend it. Um, because no one, you know, no one has to see it except you. Mm -hmm. Uh, I get really intimidated by, by the blank page. Like a lot of writers do. Mm. Uh, and, uh, one of the things that helps me and I feel stupid while I'm doing it. Um, but it usually, it usually pays off. Um, I'm like, I'm like even bitter now confessing that it pays off, (laughs) but yeah, just writing bad stuff on Mm -hmm. purpose and then 
and then you know warming up and feeling better and uh accidentally stumbling onto something really no matter what you're writing i mean that's a just a really easy free tool mm-hmm. at your disposal how long do you think it took for you to get like a, a hang of like doing the headlines um that's a good question i mean i think because because you know i had a pitch uh Document. I had a I had a job application, so I had good jokes in the job application. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that it really worked like that. I think that I had an idea. I had you know I read the Onion, so I had good taste in Onion headlines. Mm-hmm. And then I probably came to my packet with like three really good ones. Um, so I don't know that in any of those, you know, midnight emails of 15 headlines, I had more than three really good ones because that is kind of how the onion works. Like they're Mm -hmm. hard to write. Mm -hmm. They're perfect kind of self-contained story jokes, you know, in one sentence, uh, that, so I, I, I don't, I think muscle memory helped. But, uh, you know, there were, there were times when the experience hurt. There were times when I was like burning, burning jokes weeks before and then coming back and like trying to write them again because I thought there was something there or rewriting them accidentally, you know, Mm -hmm. pitching the same thing again because there's like also sort of a formula to them. Uh, so yeah, I don't know that, I don't know that I ever like got better. (laughs) I think I was, I think I was a guy who was capable of doing them. And then it's a numbers game. Uh-huh. That's my theory. Uh, so then you started at Clickhole. Yes. And that was when the site started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there at the I was there at the very beginning of Clickhole. Uh, yeah, it was it was fun and weird and um, you know like uncharted territory and not honestly not really what it ended up becoming. And now it's like just so much weirder and funnier and like I liked what we were doing at the time, uh, but. It was very much still kind of like informed by the by the gimmick, by the buzzfeediness mm-hmm. of it. I'm fucking with the mic again. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, I mean, uh, at, at the beginning, I think we kind of had to pay off the contract with the audience, and then just by virtue of like the writers that they hired being so so funny and so weird, uh, and there not really being any rules, <laughs> uh, they were able to just kind of spin it off into into what it is now mm-hmm. it's like really just crazy out there kind of freeform comedy site how did it even uh start as like an internal idea it came from i don't know the whole story but it came from like a i believe collaborations between departments uh i think that it may or may not have started in uh in the onion news network uh, and then, uh, and then obviously the newspaper, uh, side of things, uh, you know, uh, was, was brought in immediately or there may have been like competing ideas cause it's pretty basic. Like if the onion is a newspaper, then click hole is new media. Uh, okay. it was like sort of just like an idea with a certain degree of like, um, you know, inevitability, like an instant buy-in, uh, it's a so great pitch. Very easy pitch. It's yeah. a great pitch. It's like, Oh, why doesn't the onion have, have, this is what, this is what the onion would be now if mm-hmm. there had never been the onion, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be based on like Huffington post and, uh, and Buzzfeed and, um, vi- like viral videos, like the very like basic concept of virality. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't exactly know how click hole came to be. I-, I know that I was in meetings with like names, like lists of names, 
for it. Lists of names. Oh, really? Slogans. Yeah, 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 of course. Do you remember any uh, any of those names? No. Even if I did, I probably (laughs) am not supposed to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, but yeah, uh, there was, yeah, there was uh, a lot of um, pretty, pretty, what I think is what I think is like a pretty standard operating procedure for like spinning out a new website out of an existing comedy site. It's like some people got uh, brought over from other departments to be editors and uh, you know run the business side. And um, the sponsor was Jack Links uh, with the oh, Sasquatch right. at the very, that, yeah. the very very beginning. It was Jack Links, and uh, I, I believe they asked us to take uh, take down one of our first <laughs> one of our first videos. Um, what, do you remember what the video was? Hell yeah, I remember what the video <laughs> was. Because it was something that Colin Crawford and I came up... I don't know if we came up with it together, or if we both pitched it independently of each other, which is <laughs> trouble. Uh, but it was, uh, you'll never see Calvin and Hobbes uh, again the same way after you look at this video. And it is, uh, I'm sure you can still find it on the internet, but it's just Calvin having sex with Hobbes <laughs> uh, to like smooth saxophone music. Nice, and there's lots nice. of like tail stroking and lip biting. <laughs> uh, so uh, I believe... Uh, that the sponsor uh, said, "Hey, if you could not have our name next to uh, articles debating whether something is child pornography, that would be awesome. Ideally, uh, Jack Links should never be in the same sentence as child pornography, even if that sentence is this is not child pornography. This is Jack Links. This is Jack Links." Um, so, uh, yeah, Clickle, Clickle was, was fun. I was only there for a second, and mm-hmm. then they moved to New York and started working for BuzzFeed, mm-hmm. the opposite of Clickhole, or the same thing as Clickhole, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it has more in common with Clickhole than it does with anything else. <laughs> and, and they, and they kind of, uh, let me just write humorous content. Mm-hmm. Like, they, if I wanted to do something that would have worked on Clickhole, BuzzFeed just let me do it, because yeah. they ultimately sort of are down for whatever as long as it uh, is fun and trafficy. Mm-hmm. So, how did you get involved as an associate editor at Clickhole? Um, I think just by being in the Onion family, uh, by like uh, working a lot with uh, the the creative director at the time and the the head writer of the Onion News Network at the time, mm-hmm. um, and just uh, yeah, being available. Honestly, like being. Mm-hmm. Uh, reliable and available and uh, sort of I, I had kind of a next in line feeling uh, that that I don't think I was totally imagining uh, because they hired other guys from my department at Groupon uh, in a weird way was a comedy writer's room <laughs> not like a traditional one but a place where there were fairly disciplined people writing comedy every day or you know humorous ad copy every day so if you were going to get people through like referral or people with similar like experience and sensibilities. I sort of had like a vibe that I was next in line. Uh, and they put me on a lot of freelance stuff in the meantime. So I, it really was just this kind of, you know, overt conversation about like, yeah, when we've got something, we would love to have you mm-hmm. on board. Uh, so Clickhole ended up being the thing that they were hiring for. And what were those like early days of the site? Like when people were still kind of unsure of what it would be and, where things are going, it's not. It's not very story-ish, is yeah. the, you know. It's not like the the National Lampoon movie on Netflix. Like, there's not that much to it because the Onion, the Onion behind the scenes. You know, if you've heard the, the This American Life episode, is serious, 
and disciplined. And uh, Clickhole was written the way The Onion is written, with like spreadsheets of jokes and you know email contributors and uh, you know like kind of like an open office. We're all just sitting in a little row uh, with our headphones, and we don't know each other super well. <laughs> so um, there wasn't that much to it, other than a lot of like. Uh, you know, excitement about what it was going to be and not having any real money or time to do videos. Right. There's a lot of like videos in the kitchen, you know, that kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was an instant hit. And then I think it kind of morphed into a, a sizable cult following. And it's really cool that it got to be both. Mm-hmm. It got to be like a big, like the pitch, like you were saying, the pitch is really good. So it blew up on day one because media people love writing about the media. <laughs> and then it got to be clickhole, and then like gradually what that meant changed yeah. <laughs> as it started becoming like uh, like uh, weird choose your own adventure games about, you know, uh, finding your son's gold or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you left clickhole to go to BuzzFeed. Yeah. Uh, what prompted that move? Um, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to live in New York. I was pretty sure I wanted to live in New York. I knew that I wanted to do something on a bigger scale, uh, work in either film or television if I could. Uh, and I had friends at BuzzFeed, uh, and the plan was to work at BuzzFeed and then like write packets and stuff. Um, I'd also just gone through a breakup, which is an awesome time to move to a new city. (laughs) I highly recommend it. Uh, so it was kind of like a, yeah, like a confluence of, of things. Um, you know, I had the best comedy writing job in Chicago. I got to write for Clickhole and I knew I still wanted to do, you know, something, something more kind of traditional, uh, and, and maybe on like a a bigger platform. Um, so, uh, as soon as I had the opportunity to, to work in BuzzFeed, like getting, coming to New York with a job. Uh, made all the difference. Coming to New York in my 30s with a job lined up mm-hmm. um, and like a little bit of savings was way, way, way different than if I had come here, you know, when I was 19 as a stand-up, which also works for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but wasn't what I did. And was it like, was there like a, a lot of people doing like humor stuff at BuzzFeed or were you one of the, the few? BuzzFeed's like funny <clears throat> by virtue of just being weird and high energy. Like right. they didn't have a humor... Like the whole time I was there, we were trying to get the humor vertical started. Like they'd kind of like start stopped and started with humor a bunch of times. So like when I was there, the, we hired a couple of humor writers. We hired Sam Weiner. Uh, we hired the How to Win and Everything on Your News Network Groupon guy, uh, the other one. And um, the whole the whole time I was there, we were just trying to kind of like figure out what humor at BuzzFeed was when it wasn't really. A perfect fit with their audience um so we were doing like mcsweeney's type stuff or kind of college humor type stuff anything we tried anything um you know we had friends at funny or die uh and they do weird editorial content um that you know is is worth is worth checking out uh, if you only know them for videos so we we're trying stuff like that and uh it just it was fine i liked working there a lot the people are really great the place is is you know, it's a fun startup culture. You kind of can't beat it. But um, it's hard to kind of get, like, real comedy going there. Mm. Like, I think they launched BuzzFeed Comedy, like, maybe the day I left. 
Oh, really? Uh, yeah, or shortly thereafter, or right before. It was it, as I was as I was leaving, as I was figuring out the Colbert transition. Uh-huh. Like they finally got like a BuzzFeed comedy vertical up, which I believe has gone totally fallow because it's ultimately uh-huh. just not really their deal. Right. Like the stuff that they do that's funny can be funny without being on their comedy page. Mm-hmm. BuzzFeed is just kind of you go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing indefinitely, and the tone probably fluctuates. Uh, somewhat uh and you know you maybe land on one that is overtly like hardcore (laughs) hardcore comedy (laughs) that is not a phrase that i like or meant to use (laughs) um so uh yeah so i worked i worked at buzzfeed for around the same time i worked at clickhole i worked at buzzfeed and clickhole i think like six months apiece Mm. so you you did a lot of um online digital comedy yeah like art like in prose writing too what yeah? What do you think are like the hallmarks of like a good, like, funny article for the internet? That's a great question. Um, I mean, the stuff that I like isn't necessarily consistent. Uh, I think like there's just a lot of really good humor writing. Um, like my friend, uh, the Late Show, Jen Spira, does really amazing uh, New Yorker pieces, and she has just a really good voice for that. A really good turn of phrase and a really good. Um, kind of like satirical uh, eye that she can like, especially for like New Yorker and New York based mm-hmm. <laughs> targets, like comedy targets. She's really good at like uh, making fun of like wealthy people yeah, or, yeah. you know, like uh, cliches of like Upper East Side or uh, stereotypes that I am vaguely aware of. <laughs> um so like I love that, but like I wouldn't, I can't write that. Uh, and same, like I love like something like Akewood, which is not prose, but it's a web comic, and it is so poetic, uh, but at the same time like really character driven, uh, and all dialogue because it's comic, it's a visual. So something like that was a huge influence on me. Um, but uh, I think you you want to say if there's one like consistent thing. Um, that that I, I latch onto and kind of explain is that you want to say something true in a way that you've never heard before, mm-hmm. and I might be I might be quoting or or misquoting a friend, but um, like Thirty Rock was really good at that. Like Thirty Rock would, uh, I, I think this is Colin Crawford uh, put it this way. He said that they would tell the joke that was in your head already, mm. but you never heard it before. You know, like they would just kind of turn that key and say something. Like, uh, I I wish I could pull an example, but just something that was so instantly accessible, but also totally new. Right. Like, not, it wasn't absurd. It's the opposite of absurd. It was observational, but like with absurd phrasing or just like untrodden ground where you're like, thank you. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Uh, and that, that to me is, that to me is really funny. Uh, like a like a like a <laughs> I don't know if this I don't know if this <laughs> even is on the same subject, but like the the Kimmy Schmidt joke uh, in the in you know cousin of Thirty Rock, where uh, Titus says uh, everyone's gay. It's the nineties, <laughs> which is wrong and true. <laughs> like you know you know why he thinks it's true. Yeah, <laughs> but he's phrasing it in the the dumbest way possible mm-hmm. with total confidence. So yeah, I think like the prose writing that I really like, like, like the comedy prose is like, um, you know, I really like like Simon Rich. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like, um, 
some sort of memoir stuff like uh, you know David Sedaris obviously is really great and uh, I love uh, uh, Adam Resnick the uh, uh, oh, former yeah. Letterman writer his his book Will Not Attend is one of the funniest humor books in the universe and um, all of that stuff is is really true and really observational and personal in that kind of like new and energizing but simultaneously kind of universal and relatable way and then there's other stuff like Jack Handy uh, where it's the craziest thing you've ever heard with just this like perfect kind of deadpan mm-hmm. and this like sparse construction uh, or um, uh, it's a big influence on me and Sam when we were writing the book uh, uh, was uh, John Hodgman's books um, and his his uh, his character his persona I think is another great way of just like totally absurd you know juxtapositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, of things so yeah i don't there's there's not really, really any rules i'm just a fan yeah across the board um because you brought up the titus uh joke i just remembered uh when i was in middle school i was watching like will and grace randomly sure and yeah. there was an episode where um i guess will the will character yeah um, of, of will and grace of will and grace the titular will yeah uh, he was angry because everyone in New York was gay. Like he was like, uh, yeah, he was like, he was like surprised. He didn't want to be like special. He lost his, he lost his thing. Yeah. And I remember thinking that was thing. genius as like a middle school. It's like, it's, it's such, it's so smart. It's very, yeah, it's very subversive. Yeah. It's a, it's declaring a new status quo. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's actually kind of a, it's like a bold joke. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen, no no I've seen one I've seen one episode of Will and Grace I've seen the premiere of the new season in 2017 oh which is a weird oh, yeah. weird only episode of Will and Grace to have seen because <laughs> they are in the Oval Office for a lot of it really oh yeah people gotta find this if you haven't seen the premiere of the new Will and Grace it is fucking crazy how is no how come that should have been like a huge internet thing yeah yeah i think it's just people kind of knew what will and grace was already and took it for granted but i i sort of knew what it was but i'd never seen it and then my wife you had seen it and was curious about you know she my wife uh is a sophisticated native new yorker uh who grew up uh not in new york uh, is not is not from here. Is has it in her bones and her blood, and is in in no way from here. And is a liar who is pretending. Uh, but uh, she watched Will and Grace when she was a kid and liked all the sophisticated humor and the New Yorkiness of it. And the you know, there's like jokes about fashion and celebrities. Mm-hmm. So she watched the new Will and Grace with me, and it was so fucking weird. Yeah. Uh, Grace is hired. Grace, who I understand to be a decorator is hired to decorate the Oval Office (laughs) and is left there unattended uh, to, like... To like have long conversations. Is is Trump the president in this world? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It takes Whoa, place. Oh, it's such a strange. This is Earth six one six. No, I don't know what I don't know what our Earth is. That's the Marvel universe or the <laughs> what was what was then the Prime Marvel universe. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, Trump. Yeah, it's not like an. Will and Grace doesn't have like a, it's not an alternate reality right, with right, its right. own president. <laughs> that would be fantastic. I think Rick and Morty does that. If Will and Grace yeah. wanted to do the same thing, that would actually be really funny. Wow. 
Uh, yeah, listeners, go check out that Will and Grace you episode. It. If you take nothing else away from this, let me give a <laughs> shout out to a struggling little program <laughs> called Will Ampersand Grace. <laughs> um, so also you've you've done a lot of uh, comics, like comic books. Oh yeah, I, I did just drop that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a comic. I'm a comics writer. Uh, uh, when I'm uh, nights and nights and weekends. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's going good. It's a passion, you know. It's something I grew up with. How did you get uh, started with that? It, I had a friend, you know. So much of what I've done really came from the internet, like joking around on Twitter, and um, or being part of like little little uh, clubs. Like uh, uh, I met some cool people on the Friends of Tom uh, message board, the best show on on WFMU oh, yeah. at the time, the best show on WFMU. Uh, now the best show podcast podcast slash uh, live radio show. And um, I, that was when I started using Twitter. It was kind of when his message board migrated to Twitter. And on Twitter, I would meet just like random cool people. Uh, and everybody was sort of a peer. You know, you're all kind of leveled the playing field in terms of like if you're funny and you're talking about something that other people are also interested in, like comic books, you know, where there's you know, like, a, like a Patton Oswalt or something uh, who likes the best show and comic books might see that you are you know, talking about those things and, and he just, you know, he's on the internet like everybody else and just wants to play. Um, so I started doing comics when I met uh, a then uh, Valiant Comics editor, uh, Alejandro Arbona, who's edited a lot of really, really great Marvel comics and uh, also really great Valiant comics and now is just a freelancer and, and, uh, and a writer in his own right. And uh, he knew that I did comedy uh, and then I was into comic books, and we just started hanging out. Uh, he was in Chicago a lot. Uh, we would like grab drinks, and he asked me to do uh, some humor pages, like some individual, uh, like fake advertisements and oh, okay. individual pages uh, in in some Valiant's comics. So you can see the first. Uh, and I, I'd always wanted to do comics. Like when I was in film school, I wasn't really seeing movies. It was mostly reading comics because I could take them everywhere. And uh, I had a projectionist job. I thought, this is great. I'll see all the movies. But you, the, it's a glass window next to a projector. <laughs> There's <laughs> never been a worse way to watch a movie. Uh, maybe it's all digital now and it's, it's whisper quiet. Uh, but then they probably wouldn't have hired me. They wouldn't have needed a projectionist. <laughs> uh, so um, I would just read stacks of... That's when I came back to... Uh, I read comics as a kid. And it kind of fell off in the 90s because it was expensive and very very kind of bombastic and the culture of it, you know, the bubble burst business wise, I think the bubble burst kind of like, uh, diminishing returns wise in terms of people's engagement with it too. So, um, I stopped reading comics in high school and came back to it late high school, early college, uh, with, uh, like bound book length, you know, collections of like Sandman uh, you know, Preacher, Transmetropolitan, Watchmen, you know, somebody gave me Watchmen, mm-hmm. uh, and like a Fantagraphics stuff and, um, uh, you know, autobiographical comics and, you know, cool indie stuff like that. So I, I came back, came back hard, uh, as a, as a young adult and then just wanted to write comics as much as I wanted to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and figured it was another path, you know, it was another thing I could learn how to do, uh, cause there was no guarantee that any one of these things would turn into a job. So if I pursued a lot of stuff kind of simultaneously, you know, one of them might one of them might turn into a job. And I was very very lucky that once I got the Colbert job, I also during that time had been had been dipping my toe into comics, and uh, was now in a 
in a position to kind of know what my schedule was and know what I could handle. Uh, it's not entirely true. I over I overcommit when I have the opportunity to, um, and uh, yeah, start start uh, gradually doing more for Valiant, more for Valiant, more for Valiant, and then uh, meeting people. You know, just by living in kind of New York in a media town, uh, meeting people who I knew from Twitter, uh, like like Alejandro, um, and uh, uh, hitting it off with them, and them knowing that I was interested in doing comics at some point. So it was really kind of just like I was a guy who was available during schedule gaps or, or for special occasions for like humor driven stuff. Uh, and then the trick then is to just do a good job, mm-hmm. um, to yeah, meet your, meet your deadlines and, uh, uh, be the kind of person that people would want to work with again. What's like the, the process of like writing a comic? Like, do you, do you come up with the story or do, is that sometimes is kind of, sometimes you come up with it, sometimes it's pitched to you. Yeah. Editors will pitch you stuff. Um, and it's different on every level. Uh, cause if you're working for like, uh, Marvel or, or DC, they have a lot of things that they need to happen. Um, for like their bigger universe or like for their sort of like branding reasons. Uh, I'm, pr- I'm pretty new to, to working with the big companies. Um, but it's, it's not as when I was writing screenplays as a student, they really put the fear of God into you. And they said, you have to use this font, this size, these margins, this formatting, because screenplay readers are interns and they're told that if you see a mistake, that's, you have permission to throw that away. Because even if it's the best script you've ever written, uh, it's, you have too much to read today to, uh, have zero criteria for when to stop reading something. Um, so comics are not like that. Comics are much more like there's a few templates that circulate, uh, and comic writers will share templates and things. Uh, so the process is kind of like the editor will tell you sort of what they need when they're hiring you, whether that amounts to, here's a character. Do you have any ideas for this character? Or uh, whether that amounts to like, we need this character to do this thing or we're really excited about this idea and we think you're the writer to bring it home um so with uh the valiant comic i'm writing right now quantum and woody i think it was the editor's idea to bring in um it's about two adopted brothers uh, a black a black brother and a white brother and they're raised by the the black guy's dad and the white kid is the foster foster brother uh and i believe it was the editor's idea to bring in his biological father as like a big MacGuffin. And other than that, I was kind of like able to do whatever I wanted. Mm. Um, I was able to pitch like around that idea. And even that wasn't set in stone, which was really cool. Um, but it was a great idea. So uh, in that case, um, you, what you would pitch is sort of like an outline for... It's it's kind of like a movie treatment. It's an outline for what is going to amount to four to six issues of comic books. Um, you know, roughly... The uh, 100 pages of comic books. Uh, and then um, from there, it's just a like a formalizing process. Uh, if you want to learn how to write comic books, uh, Greg Pack, uh, who's done a lot of really good... I saw that yeah, on Twitter yesterday. Yeah. Kind of like a couple of viral threads. He's been doing a lot of process threads lately. Mm-hmm. And one of them, uh, a less recent one, is uh, how he... Uh, how he uh, breaks down a comic script, and it's exactly what I do, but more professional. Uh, so I really recommend looking at that. But essentially, it amounts to like having an idea, writing it out as one story, writing it out as four chunks of story, writing those four chunks as twenty-two pages, 
uh, and then mm-hmm. each page of the script is you know individual panels. So it's it's this very you know, it's it's the it's the stock footage of the fertilized embryo dividing into individual <laughs> cells. You know, you're telling you're telling a story with with parts, with machinery, even more so than you would be with a screenplay. Mm-hmm. You know, even more so than you would be with acts or scenes, uh, because you are building an image. You're building twenty something images. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, you start with you start with the big idea, and then it's like a okay how do i how do i pace it out uh i need four you know i need three cliffhangers and an ending if you're writing like traditional kind of like newsstand comic books mm-hmm. so um kind of like a pretty much like a, like a tv show like an episode of a tv show yeah of. really similar i mean like a like a a comic book like a mainstream comic book right now is a four episode mini series yeah, it's like a BBC show. Mm, it's like yeah. here's four episodes, and that's what you get. Um, you know, if they don't take seven years off, uh, you, a new season starts the the fifth month or something. Um, but yeah, like if you go buy like volume one of uh, you know Quantum and Woody, which is not out yet, uh, but if you bought Quantum and Woody volume one, you would get um, four issues of Quantum and Woody that tell one four part story. And that's kind of the industry standard right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really it's comparable to TV. It's this weird kind of hybrid of TV and movies, and it's also purely collaborative. Uh, so the you know the artist is is as much or more the director uh, than than the writer. But the writer you know it's still incumbent upon the writer to suggest angles and use those angles to tell a story. So it's kind of the sweet spot for me. It's like making a movie. <laughs> And I love comic books, and I don't have to be on a set, and I don't need to know anything technically because that's where the artist steps up. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Oh, well, if you made this, you know, if I colored this at sunset, you know, that's an emotional storytelling element that I'm bringing to the table." Mm. So things like that. How much do you think about the the visuals? I'm pretty extensively. <laughs> I mean, I want. I never. My rule of thumb is to never give them nothing. You right. know, like they can. The artist is the artist, uh, and uh, there are, there are writers like Alan Moore. Where if you read like the script pages for Watchmen, he is one hundred percent detail. He gives the artist one hundred percent mandatory detail, and that's what ends up being on the page. Most people are not Alan Moore, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you know the writer is kind of like you know the writers important i guess in (laughs) comics but yeah the artist is kind of the show so uh i write angles that i think will tell the story best as far as my brain is able and then somebody with a more visual brain like a purely visual brain uh gets to kind of vote thumbs up thumbs down on those and suggest suggest alternates Mm -hmm. so i'm 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 very confident in my decisions when I'm making them because I read so many comics and it's a medium that I uh, have, have studied. Um, but it's not um, really my job at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, if, if I want to work with people again, if I want to be an easygoing writer and get, get more jobs, like being really open and, and collaborative is the way to go. Do you um, try to inject a lot of humor into these stories, or not? Not, not really a focus. No, yeah, so far, so far, because mm-hmm. it's also this is also work for hire, you know. So that's what I mm-hmm. it, it make, you know. I make comedy, um, so that's sort of what people 
you know, know me for. And if they, at the end of the day, they have to write a press release that's like from the writer of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. It, they maybe don't want, like, a comic where the dog dies on right, every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, there's, you know, they, they, my my reputation precedes me. And they're like, we should get a comedy writer for this kind of, like, lighthearted thing or, like, this satirical thing. Um, so, yeah, so far that's that's what I've done. But, I mean, that being said, it's the same decision I had to make as a film student where I like comedy uh, and I want to make it. Um but it's also what the audience, you know, will will accept from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I had the opportunity to, if I had the opportunity to do, you know, like like straight drama, uh, or you know, like superhero comics, just action, just you know, Wolverine or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think I'd I'd love writing like one liners and stuff like that. But there's a lot of middle ground, you know. Like Buffy wasn't really a comedy, but it was really funny and it had like turn of phrase that was you know really unique and kind of had a lot of signatures in it. So uh, I'd be interested in doing stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, or stuff that's kind of anywhere in the the comedy action spectrum, like a like a Venture Brothers or a Rick and Morty. Like, there's all these things that I'm a huge fan of that are very superhero-y, uh, but also are comedies. Mm-hmm. And now you currently work at uh, the Late Show. Yes. Colbert. Yes. Uh, how did that uh, gig happen? I uh, was talking about the magic of Twitter friends. Um, uh, a a uh, woman uh, that I owe the world to named Megan O'Keefe. Uh, everybody go follow Megan O'Keefe on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Megan with a G, uh, with a G-H. Uh, she uh, was a Twitter friend who I met in real life uh, when I was visiting New York City. And she just kind of showed me around and we hung out uh, one afternoon. And she uh, had done comedy and uh, was a media writer and a critic and loved superheroes and, you know, Marvel movies and things. So uh, we just became friends, internet friends and then real friends. And then she uh, had a party where I ended up meeting my future wife. And then we got drinks to talk about how that was going, how how me dating her friend was going. And she said, hey, I have the packet submission info for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And at the time I worked at BuzzFeed and I was thinking, like, this is great. I've got a secure office job. I'll write like an SNL packet. I'll write like a Daily Show packet. Uh, eventually, the Letterman, you know, whatever replaces Letterman is gonna is gonna spin up. Uh, I didn't know that it would happen within like a couple of months that somebody would say like, "Hey, here's the the submission info for for the Late Show with Stephen Colbert." And I had had when I lived in Chicago, I'd gotten through stand up friends the contact info for Larry Wilmore, uh, and I chickened out of doing it, and I regretted it a mm. lot, a lot, a lot. Um, but why did you not do it? I don't remember. It was something like I just didn't feel like I was good enough. I didn't feel mm. like the deadline was creeping up, and I didn't think I would do a good enough job in the amount of time that I, you know, had given myself by procrastinating. Uh, and um, I'd also, when I was in New York, I'd had like a really brief kind of introductory conversation with some of the James Corden people, but um, I didn't want to leave New York. I lived here now, and I had just started dating this aforementioned person I was going to marry. Uh, so it was very, very, very serendipitous, um, that I, that I got the, the packet, uh, submission information, uh, from, from my friend, mm-hmm. cause she had a, a manager or an agent, uh, and I did not. And they, uh, I don't, I don't know how universal this is, but they got, uh, the, the submission info early so they could give it to people who kind of already had representation or were like seasoned in some way before the call went out you know, on like cbs.com slash jobs uh, to, to uh, 
uh, the world at large. So I got a little head start. Um, and I just, I just submitted, uh, I submitted, I, I sent it to, to some friends. I sent it to Colin Crawford, uh, who still lived in Chicago. Uh, and we, we both ended up getting, getting hired, uh, as, as writers. So, uh, yeah, I was at BuzzFeed for about six months. I got a lead on the Colbert Show packet. Uh, I got it from Megan. And then I also got it from a stand-up friend named Julia Solomon. Uh, and they were two different email addresses. So I don't know to whom I owe, uh, <laughs> to whom I owe, uh, oh, no, 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 that's not true. I do know this because from Megan's manager, I got a email back saying, how did you get this email address? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, either through, either through her, her manager, uh, who was maybe, you know, fishing for me to be a new client or through the open kind of packet email, uh, that was uh, disseminating through the standup community. I just submitted via email like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and ended up, yeah, getting, getting through the first round and then, you know, second rounds and series of interviews and phone call and then Skype interviews and, uh, in-person interview and, um, that was that was that was that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was uh, hired to hired to come on at the beginning of this show, at the beginning of the, the CBS show. How do you approach writing a packet in general? So for this, it was I always tell people like if you look for packet examples online, you will find them. But if you don't find them, it doesn't matter because you mm. can reverse engineer any show that you're a fan of, like. Uh, if I were if I were trying to write a packet for the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, I'd write like uh, I'd figure out what, how our monologue is different than like the Conan monologue. Like our monologue is sort of like mini mini stories uh, as opposed to one liners, like the Johnny Carson kind of traditional one liner monologue. So I'd try to write in a sample monologue or individual modular sample chunks, and then I'd probably write a a uh, guest, uh, a list of guest uh, bits or activities, uh, you know, that they could do, uh, things that you could do at the desk uh, that are like what I had seen on the show, uh, and then maybe like a, an act to sitting down at the desk with over-the-shoulder graphics, you know, a script for one of those, uh, and then that would be that would be my Colbert packet. Like, you know, if it were SNL, I'd probably write, uh, you know, three to five sketches, a bunch of weekend update jokes. Um, some host specific ideas and uh like uh two digital short pitches and that's not like the real snl packet that's just me reasoning out like what you would need to to do to to uh prove that you you know could submit a professional packet to to a tv show so um that's that's kind of that's kind of what i would do i would reverse engineer when the case of the colbert show um you know at the time at the time I got the Colbert Show contact information, I hadn't started writing packets yet. I had like just settled in at BuzzFeed. Uh, I was working on um, spec scripts, like uh, like half hour comedies and um, and comic books that were actually getting made. So the stuff that I was actually making, uh, and it's probably good that I got an official lead so quickly because you know my plan was to, on my own time and with my own discipline, write comedy packets and I hadn't done it yet. So the fact that I like had a deadline that I couldn't blow uh, helped me like sit down and actually write the Colbert packet. So that time I had the information because it was given to me by, by another comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was easy. He was, you know, the show hadn't started yet, but it was very much like what you expect a late night talk show to ask for. Like 
ideas for the guests, uh, monologue jokes, uh, a longer story about uh, a news item. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty intuitive. I mean, the only way I ever learned how to do anything is to just, like, deconstruct one. Mm-hmm. That's how I learned how to uh, submit to The Onion. Was just trying to write a bunch of, you know, do a bad impression of something until you start doing a good impression. And then eventually you'll be doing your own version um, the good impression phase lasts a really long time. <laughs> be forewarned. Uh, and this was your first uh, television job. Yes. So what was that like? Uh, just not wanting to screw it up. Like yeah. so badly not wanting to screw it up. Yeah. Um, just a different world, you know, uh, being in the writer's guild and like getting health insurance. Uh, that was, that was pretty great. Um, uh, yeah, having been a freelancer and like on Obamacare and things like that. Um, but, uh, it, it was, it was, you don't really have time to be starstruck. Like, and nobody wants to hang out with a guy who's starstruck either. Uh, like they, I don't think they would have hired me if I had been too big of a fan. Uh, yeah, I was a very big fan. Um, but I was also like able to be a professional throughout the process, uh, which is ultimately what they need. So, um, the way my wife puts it, and, uh, I'm sure that she maybe <laughs> borrowed this line from somebody else is that it needs to be somebody that you can run into at the water cooler, uh, <laughs> at 2am. Like if you're pulling some kind of crazy all nighter and it, it can't be anybody who seems crazy or, you know, too happy to be there or just happy to be there. Uh, there's a degree of, um, confidence that I think is necessary and all, but you know, at the same time, like humility and just being a normal person. Uh, so when you're doing the show every day, you get used to it really fast. You just know what's needed of you and, and try to deliver mm-hmm. it. And what was it like being on this show that hadn't aired yet? That was like trying to find its feet as you kept going. We threw a lot of stuff away. I mean, we wrote practice scripts. Um, Colbert calls it uh, screaming into a sock and throwing it off a bridge. So we did a lot of that. Um, it was, you know, it was ultimately the the problem is that uh, election 2016 happened. <laughs> so the show became the show that was like poised to talk about politics on late night network TV, you know, with an experienced hand. Uh, at a time when people like really needed to know what happened that that day, um, and uh, and uh, yeah, I like the Daily Show, uh, the Daily Show, and and when it was around, the Nightly Show uh, were were doing it, um, but there wasn't uh, you know like a, a David Letterman sized show uh, that was so much of it devoted to uh, a slightly less wonky, kind of more accessible you know, regular person, like emotion driven, like what the fuck just happened today show. So uh, it wasn't just us finding it. It was also the world changing and us being ready to kind of do a show about the stuff that was, you know, that had become the national conversation. And I I miss, you know, I miss like writing about like funny apps and bad startup ideas, (laughs) which we still do. Uh, But, uh, now you know, especially now that that uh, it's it's something that is successful. Uh, we've you know like a contract with the audience, I think, to kind of like help them through the day of the looming apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, how do you tackle like doing political comedy 
like in the age of Trump? It's not. It's. I mean, that's a big question. You yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. that's kind of what we're all asking, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you must answer. Yeah, I'll just go ahead and disseminate all of that into. Uh, yeah. So it's not any. You know, it's not any one thing. Like it's not the thing of like, oh, it must write itself. It's certainly not that because it's confusing. Like what he's doing is purposefully confusing. Um, so it's it's not like you know you have a wealth of material to deal with. Like that's true, but it's bad because it means that there's a lot of like distraction and propaganda chaff and things out there. And, and you know we're also not like an activist organization. Like it's not our job to be the watchdogs necessarily it's our job to just kind of like say well what happened and what's our emotional reaction to it and sharing that with the audience so um it's it's hard you kind of you don't you don't do every story um you do the ones that people are sort of talking about uh, specifically asking questions about uh, I remember after he got uh, elected, um, Colbert went on uh, Face of the Nation uh, or talked to John Dickerson in some capacity, and he asked him what, um, are there any stories he didn't want to do? Uh, any pitches he didn't want to swing at was the metaphor that they used. And he said, the pitch that's not being thrown. So mm. uh, what I take that to mean is uh, we don't nitpick. Like, if, if uh, Donald Trump says that he uh, says that Democrats not smiling at the State of the Union is treasonous, that's a real story. Um, if he has, like, a funny typo on the State of the Union uh, tickets to say State of the Union, that's a drive-by. You know, that's like people are talking about that. Um, but we don't go out of our way to, like, take his bait on things. <laughs> We do. There are still a ton of like real stories about about uh, the situation our country is in. Um, but uh, I think the way to do comedy in the age of Trump, if there is one way, and I'm just quoting my boss because he's smarter than me, is to not swing at the pitches that are that are not being thrown. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't spin your wheels. Don't chase things that right. are real or important because there's always going to be too much. Every that's by design. Um, from like a, a activist or political standpoint, there's too much because it is a propaganda machine. And from a comedy writer standpoint, it's like too much because like, ah, that story's not, let's do the porn star one. You know, that's the thing that is like, there's meat on that bone and people uh, are talking about it. Mm -hmm. And so what's a, what's a typical day like at Colbert for you? Um, it's, uh, it's one of those things that's pretty intuitive once you, once you find out what it is. And I don't, I can't give away like too many details not because they're super secret but just because it's out of like a professional courtesy mm-hmm. but uh there's a pitch meeting in the morning um there's uh like follow-up pitch meetings uh based on things that kind of get honed there a little bit um and those pitches uh, if they're liked uh turn into uh assignments um and uh you know those assignments are due early enough in the day that um we can uh you know rewrite them uh and f- the the coolest thing about about this job that I really really like, uh, and that I never, when I, I grew up with a lot of uh, siblings, and I always wanted to kind of be by myself and be like this iconoclastic genius <laughs> who was left to his own devices and was the sole voice of authority. And then everything I 
picked to do professionally when you're studying screenwriting or doing comic books is all very uh, collaborative, really like defined by collaboration. And at the Colbert Show, it's collaborative because it's a TV show, but we also write even the first draft of the script uh, in pairs, in duos or, or teams. Um, because at the end of the day, it has to be spoken comedy. Uh, and that stops it from being too uh, prosy, you know, or too like a New Yorker piece or The Onion or like a preachy monologue or something. Like you have to pitch it to the person who's in the room with you while you're writing it so that you know that it's funny and sounds right for, you know, whatever the thing you're trying to hit is. So um, that's that's most of the process really mm-hmm. is, is that. And then beyond that, it gets into like rewriting and rehearsing and then rewriting post-rehearsal. Uh, and then, you know, breaking news in the, the late in the day, if, if there's a press conference or something at, you know, 4.30 and we're trying to tape at 5.30, uh, then uh, it's all hands on deck. The writers all watch it and, you know, uh, contribute jokes into the, into a shared document. And do you do more um, monologue stuff or more sketch stuff? I mean, everybody does everything. Yeah. If you have an idea for a sketch thing uh, and it and it is is liked it has legs uh then then yeah you, you usually shepherd it uh all the way to production in some mm-hmm. cases um almost like a little tangential producer role um but most of the show is monologue uh most of the comedy we do ends up in the monologue mm-hmm. slot um so uh, everybody kind of does everything um and there's different times you know there's like slower days or afternoon meetings where uh, pitching something that is not breaking news uh, might go might go over a little better. How do you approach writing a monologue joke? Uh, I guess I guess it has to be, you know, it's all it's all turn of phrase. Like it's it's always riding that line between just like clever and true, mm. and like actually like laugh out loud funny. Like you want to hit that thing I talked about earlier that I that I see in people I admire where you turn the key in their head like you kind of want to say something real real true uh that is also funny and then that's like kind of a perfect monologue joke um I guess I you know they're so short they kind of come from the ether like monologue jokes are really are really weird it's like uh, energy uh, kind of in a vacuum, <laughs> like scientists making zero point energy in a lab, because um, they're so short and self contained, and they kind of come out of nowhere. You can like stare at us at a topic, uh, and a monologue joke uh, eventually emerges. Um, or you can do what I did when I worked at the Onion and write a lot of bad ones really quickly. <laughs> and maybe you have a deadline, and one of them grows on you. But in the Colbert monologue is more of like a storytelling thing. So we kind of have to explain like that it's I really like it because um, it's it's sort of narrative driven and we have to kind of explain what's going on while we joke off of it. And there's a sort of a rhythm that emerges of like a bit of information score a joke off that. You know, somebody said something crazy, mm-hmm. quote that news headline and then score a joke off that. Um, so there's this kind of this like explaining the news while riffing on it uh, kind of methodology to to the Colbert show mm-hmm. and, to like, and to like anything that kind of came from the Daily Show universe, right. you know, has like flavor of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, 
I approach it in as far as like telling the story and then like whatever my real emotion is like if I'm outraged then coming up with uh, coming up with some kind of sassy retort for lack of a better phrase or like if you know I'm explaining something and it's complicated it's like I barely understand this so like what he's saying is like his argument is like going up to a judge at your own murder trial and saying your honor the knife fell into my hand and then fell into the body like sometimes the jokes come from me trying to explain it to myself (laughs) Uh, so it really depends on like what the story needs Mm. and then at this point we're all pretty versed in the voice of the show so there's stuff that we know that will like work for our rhythm and our audience mm-hmm. uh, that we can you know hear the host saying uh, in our head really clearly. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it's a lot of like muscle memory. Uh, what would you like to be doing next? I mean, I do this forever. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I don't know. I don't know what uh, the long term. Uh, you know, it's the host. The host of the show uh, dictates. Uh, where, where it goes, but I know he loves Johnny Carson, and Johnny Carson did the Tonight Show until he was uh, 13 million years old, I want to <laughs> say. Uh, so, um, yeah, I've, I've kind of maxed out schedule-wise. You know, I had a lot going on this year. I got uh, married, uh, and uh, I had a humor book, an illustrated humor book, come out uh, called Santa's Husband uh, that I had to promote and, and kind of shepherd through, uh, and then, uh, you know, got got uh, the opportunity to do a lot of comic book stuff on nights and weekends. So the Colbert job is is the greatest and something I've wanted for a really, really long time. So I can't imagine doing anything else full-time right now, especially when uh, there are so few entertainment jobs in New York City that have that kind of job security. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, late night is, is a place where people can work for a really, really long time. And since I've been able to do stuff on the side that I enjoy, um, it's, it feels like a perfect balance. So as I'm saying this, I'm realizing I'm probably going to have a baby or something. My entire <laughs> life will be totally disrupted. <laughs> uh, Stephen Colbert will get uh, eaten by a shark and hit by lightning, uh, and then I will go work for uh, that advertising agency I talked about. <laughs> uh, cool. All right, so we're going to wrap up with you giving your thoughts on um, something I wrote. These are some click hole headlines that'd be potentially for a packet. Okay, yeah, let's do this. <clears throat> okay, um... Okay, so article, for the win, NSA to release podcast of funniest conversations they've heard. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I misheard you. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I I like it. One of the weird things about ClickHole is that the for the win or like... Oh, epic, yeah, yeah. They're so arbitrary. Right, right. Um, I would say... You're like looking for like professional feedback? Well, just like... Just like informal critique like yeah, informal yeah, yeah. stuff yeah, yeah yeah i would say i would say so the so like the the, the hook if mm-hmm. like an individual headline can have a hook the hook yeah. is the podcast so i would say t- framing it the way you would like a viral like serial is a viral podcast like writing a headline that reflects a parallel headline is something that we used to talk a lot about at clickhole uh, okay. so like you wouldn't if if a viral podcast like S Town happened, you wouldn't necessarily write like for the win podcast goes viral because mm-hmm. each headline still sort of has to be like a cohesive narrative. Weirdly, um, the same way that like a good tweet, you know, would be like a cohesive narrative in its own like granular way. So I would say like lose for the win mm-hmm. and just like retool it to like uh, like America is addicted 
to the podcast that they're legally not allowed to turn off or, you know, like something <laughs> yeah. about, you know, the NSA, the NSA uh, podcast, like going viral and just kind of making that be the star mm-hmm. rather than putting like click hole flavored language at the top. I see. Okay. It's just kind of going with like the natural momentum of whatever the main thing you're writing about mm-hmm. is. It's kind that of makes like sense. A, always yeah. a good idea, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Got another one. Uh, uh, Oh, Dave Chappelle's in hot water after saying skunks smell good. I love it. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. That's, that's, I like, yeah, I like how, I like the very basic, yeah. the very basic subverted expectations of that. Uh, uh, yeah, I have no, I have no changes. All right, all right. One last one. This man loves Breaking Bad so much that he got addicted to meth. I, that one I feel like I've heard before. Yeah? Yeah, and that's a big, um, that's something that Sam Weiner used to say at The Onion is that everybody... If everybody got the same joke first, they shouldn't do that one. Right. That Even if they've never heard it before, mm-hmm. but because it means that they could probably like aim higher mm-hmm. uh, or like weirder or deeper, you know, more sideways. Right. So if like multiple people are all coming to the same place, then that's they, in a very pretentious onion writery kind of way, see that as low hanging fruit. Right. I guess kind of that format, I guess, is kind of hanging for you. Like, this the person loves TV shows so much that they do something that's bad from the TV show, I guess. Yeah, or just that, like, I, yeah, I feel like I've seen them, and especially, like, Clickhole now, you know? Because, like, mm-hmm. this is an organization right. that's had, like, thousands of headlines come out that, like, they're always burning stuff. You know, like, an Area Man joke of it is really hard to write now yeah. because there have been so many of them. That you have to like dig deeper, you know, than, than what's been out there already. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd say with that one, nothing wrong with it. Just like felt intuitive, like instantly intuitive enough to me. Yeah. So maybe there's like a weirder. Mm. Also, I think breaking. I don't think Breaking Bad is on the air anymore. I think there's. A, uh, I, guess <laughs> I think it's been replaced by a show. Yeah, that, that's true. That you're writing an episode. Of, uh, right? Am I allowed to? Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was off mic. That was off mic business. Um. Cool. Uh, all right. Anything uh, you want to plug? Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plug yeah. it up. Uh, the Late Show with Stephen Colbert is on mm-hmm. CBS at 11.35 Eastern Time, right after your local news. That's uh, CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, <laughs> uh, formerly and currently known as the Tiffany Network. Uh, that's uh, CBS, the smart choice. I would also <laughs> uh, ask people to... Uh, we're recording this uh, in early February. This is going to be a big comics month for me. I have Quantum and Woody, number three, uh, coming out and a lockjaw number one coming out on um, February 21st and February 28th. So if you like comic books uh, or if you you know you like comedy and you've been like meaning to get into comic books, uh, they're both really good. Uh, Quantum and Woody is and number th- uh, number three is a good uh, self-contained story uh, that's uh, mostly told in flashbacks. So you don't need to know anything else. And lockjaw is a jumping-on point uh, for a mini series. So I promise huh? not too intimidating. If you're not a comics person, but you like comedy or, you know, the Marvel movies, uh, you can call your local comic book store and they would love your support. <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week.
and a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.